0: When faith-based organizations and leaders put the kingdom of God above their organization's mission, what happens? What is possible when women and men pursue collaboration over competition and alliances over divisions? This is the Rooting for Rivals podcast, a six-episode series released in coordination with the new book, Rooting for Rivals, by Peter Greer and Chris Horst with Jill Heisey. Welcome to episode one of the Rooting for Rivals podcast, the first episode in a short series highlighting leaders pursuing collaboration over competition. In this first episode, we tackle the why of the book and the how with the book's co-authors Peter Greer, Chris Horst, and Jill Heisey. Peter is the CEO and president of Hope International. Chris is the VP of development of Hope International, and Jill is a communications specialist based in Maryland. So let's jump right into it. Peter, why write this book and why write it now?
1: Yeah, several years ago, Blake, there was a new campaign that we were launching that our marketing team had been working on, and it was built around Exodus four two and this question that God asks Moses about, what is in your hand? And uh, we were looking at this uh, as not just a communications piece, but really a devotional to focus on what would happen if all of us realized how much God had already given us and how we can use that in the advancement of his kingdom. And as we launched uh, this this campaign, as we launched this video devotional, the first call that I received was one that I wasn't expecting. It was from another organization, and I was told uh, that we needed to stop using uh, this this video campaign and stop using this verse because uh, the other organization had filed uh, for a trademark on Exodus 4:2, this question of what's in your hands. And that was not the response that I was expecting. This idea about uh, trademarking a Bible verse. I didn't even know that that was possible. And I remember uh, looking back at that of thinking, well, first of all, I didn't even think that was possible, but secondly, why would you want to trademark a Bible verse? But a couple months later, um, forgetting about this incident, there was another piece of communication that came from another organization, and it was sent to me at Hope. And it also had used this same question of what's in your hands, the same Bible verse. And I remember my initial response was, how dare they use our Bible verse? How dare they use this message that was the message that we were promoting? And I believe it was at that time that Chris uh, helped point out this enormous log that was protruding from my eye, that it was so easy to spot in another organization. A medium-sized plank. uh, (laughs) I don't know. I think it was a pretty big log, Chris. And, And again, the question, it was so easy to see in another, and yet I was having this same thing in my own heart of saying, but that's mine. And how easy it is to lose sight of the bigger mission and to think about trademarks and to think about organizational protection and to think about prestige and, and to lose sight of the ultimate mission that we have. And it wasn't just that instance, but over the course of the last uh, couple years, I've been realizing that there are too many instances where I think about what's going to be best for hope instead of a bigger and better question of what's going to be best for the kingdom. And I don't want to do that anymore. I want to be a people that has a bigger and grander mission than just trying to build an organization. And I believe at this moment in time, there is so much disunity. There is so much of a competitive spirit among us. I long for the day when people look at followers of Jesus and they see an uncommon unity. And one of the ways that they see that is this is a group of people that actively roots for their rivals, that actively seeks the best, not just of their organization and their mission, but the best of other organizations as well. Mm. Yeah. And you could have structured this book
0: a ton of different ways, but you, you chose to structure it around a two by two framework. Chris, why use this framework? As Peter mentioned,
2: we found over the course of, of writing Mission Drift this was sort of an undercurrent within the organizations that we featured in that book. Uh, one of the organizations that we feature in Mission Drift for the ways in which they've remained faithful as an organization to, to their unique calling as an organization is Compassion International. But as we did our reflection on Mission Drift and began presenting on Mission Drift, a theme that came out about compassion was the ways in which they were so open-handed toward hope and generous toward hope. And one of the ways that manifested is just in the ways their leaders, again, as Peter referenced, the way their leaders saw their mission as one that extended beyond the boundaries of Compassion International. Uh, West Stafford, who is the president emeritus of Compassion, just was an incredible ally for us along the research of mission drift and into rooting for rivals. But there was never any um, self-motivation in the the ways in which he volunteered his time uh, to us throughout the process. He, he's cheered, cheered us along from, from day one uh, because he believes that, that part of Compassion's mission, part of his mission as a leader is one uh, that doesn't exclusively uh, it's not exclusively limited to the organization featured on his business card. and And so that's where this two by two came from. And the two by two in short, is we we plot out uh, leaders and organizations that have a kingdom orientation versus a clan orientation. So they're focused on not just what's happening within their organizational boundaries, but uh, what's happening uh, for the kingdom of God. And then secondarily, uh, they're focused on and and recognize that we serve a God of abundance and not a God of scarcity. And if those two things are true, if we have a kingdom orientation and we believe in a God of abundance, it really changes the way in which we lead. And it changes our organizations. And so organizations that show up in Rooting for Rivals, like Compassion, they practice that sort of posture where they have both this kingdom orientation and they they clearly, woven throughout the whole organization and the people that work there, is a belief that, that we serve as Christians a God of abundance, and that should drive us away from the things that, as you prefaced earlier, Blake, uh, drive us toward collaboration and away from competition. If we believe that ultimately it's we serve and we seek first the kingdom of God, that it'll it'll change the way we operate as organizations and lead us away from fighting and clamoring for a larger slice of of this fixed pie but recognizing that, that God, God's capable of providing all of our needs, and it's our job to, search, to seek the kingdom first.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and you, you uncover a lot of case studies, along with compassion, of people who are doing this really well. And Jill, I'm curious, what what surprised you about this project in the, in the process of researching and writing this book?
3: this is my first book project. So honestly, the first thing that springs to mind is just how long it took. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but, um, (laughs) I was pregnant when Peter and Chris first approached me about working on this project with them. And my littlest one is now two and a half. So it was quite a process. Um, but a little more seriously, as we were researching and and writing for the past two years, as I would talk with people about this book project, I think what continually surprised me was just how much the idea resonates with almost everyone I talked with, um, both Mm -hmm. within communities of faith and outside communities of faith. It just makes sense to people that when you're trying to maximize impact and not maximize profit, that you would take a collaborative approach. And yet what we found is that this is still an exception. And we get into this a lot more in the book, but, you know, there's something within us that keeps us from rooting for our rivals, even when we intellectually believe that it is the right approach to be taking. Hmm.
0: Yeah. And, and Peter, you admittedly share in the book uh, some times when Hope International itself has gotten this wrong in the past and what you personally have learned in the process. So specifically, you tell a story about apricots and the, the way they play a role in you learning to root for rivals. So maybe you could share a little bit about that story and then just how Hope International has grown in this way.
1: We believe that failure is oftentimes a pretty fertile place to learn some lessons, and uh, and so we're not afraid to look uh, failure in the eyes and say what what went wrong here, what was it about this, and what can we learn from that. And you know, when I think back uh, to that stage of hope, the story that you're referencing, um, this was a time that I was I was focused on growth, and 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 growth primarily measured by the size of our budget and the number of people that we were serving. And so if that's the primary definition of success, if that's what you're looking at, then you're going to do anything possible to get that. And to make matters worse, I was actually uh, having growth charts, not just for Hope International, but looking at relative growth of other organizations, which is really an unhelpful and unhealthy thing to do. When you're comparing your quote-unquote success to others, it either inflates you, fills you up with an unhealthy sense of pride, or or it causes you to have this uh, idea of despondency, or it causes you to focus on things that are outside of your area of expertise. And so it's in this uh, context that there was an opportunity to do something about farming apricots in in the former Soviet Union. And it would have allowed us to grow. It would have allowed us to increase our budget and it would have been completely off mission. Um, We did not have the expertise. It was not within the scope of who we are. There are other organizations that were far more equipped to do that type of work, but instead of pointing uh, the group of donors that had an interest in this, instead of pointing them to other organizations, we thought uh, about diving into this area ourselves, and that would have pulled us off mission. Uh, Thankfully, there was a group of people that asked some great questions at that time, and I think started to open us up to this idea that maybe we shouldn't try to do everything. Uh, Maybe we don't have to try to do everything. Maybe there are opportunities to have uh, partnerships with other organizations, and for all of us to focus on our relative area of focus um, and, and uh, again, to have this idea that we can do more together. We can have a greater impact together than we could possibly have if we're all individually chasing the next thing as opposed to actively uh, connecting resources to people and organizations that have that genuine focus and mission. And so again, I, I think about that story as one of getting off mission because I had the wrong idea of of success, and it really was a comparative definition of success.
2: And I think that's a def, that's a, a such a good example of what Jill shared about you. You would have said at that point that as bodies of as members of of the body of Christ, we we should recognize. Uh, and intellectually, even though you could intellectually affirm and recognize your, our unique role as Hope International in the body of Christ, it's like the gravitational pull. Our default is when, when we see an opportunity that, of course, like we want to pursue it. And so so you can have this dissonance, as I think, as leaders, where you can affirm the the fact that we should not do all things, that we're not capable of doing everything well, and yet— when opportunities emerge, it's like it's like we we have blinders on and we just can't possibly think outside of well. And there's an opportunity for us. There's there's you know territory that we can plow. Like we should just we should just take it. We should do it. And and yet the the reality in that situation and so many times we've gotten this wrong at hope is that there are a better posture would be to say are we the right people to do this? Or is there someone else operating within uh, this area that we could lean into and partner with and the fruit that can come from saying, not saying no, but saying not us and being part of connecting that uh, another organization, another ministry to that opportunity can create so much more fruit than if we just say yes to every opportunity that comes along.
0: Hmm. And Chris, you have found in this book a lot of examples of people who have done that well. What is one of your favorite case studies in the book that shows, that shows all of us what's possible when we put God's kingdom first?
2: I live in Denver, Colorado, and just South of downtown, there is this gorgeous old mansion. It's one of the the last remaining mansions on South Broadway, which is a main thoroughfare in and out of the city. And This mansion sat vacant for a number of years, but previous to uh, its vacancy, there there had been a sort of a long history of uh, altercations and drug abuse and violence that took place at this property. And a group of Christian ministries in Denver have been praying together about uh, creating a safe place for homeless youth to live. And... Through a really crazy set of circumstances, including country line dancing, uh, where there there was this fortuitous meeting uh, between a few uh, board members of this organization at a country line dancing um, evening in Denver, I met the owner of this building who was trying to sell it, sold it to this these minis- this one ministry Providence Network, and Providence Network recognized that even though they they had this passion for serving vulnerable street youth, kids that lived uh, on the streets of Denver. They didn't have the expertise to serve kids. They, they're a Christian transitional housing ministry that's worked primarily with adults and had no experience working with kids. And so they decided to create this joint venture called the Silver Linings House. And, and so now over the course of two years, they, they renovated, they bought and renovated the project and, and they brought three organizations underneath this one literal roof. Uh, And those organizations are Providence Network, who's got the experience developing transitional housing projects in Denver, Uh, Purple Door Coffee, which is a a coffee roastery and and coffee house that's specifically focused on employing uh, vulnerable kids, at-risk homeless children in the work of uh, the coffee shop and roasting business. Uh, And then the third is Dry Bones, and Dry Bones is a, a a street youth ministry. So they, as an organization, have spent the last decade serving and getting to know kids, building relationships with kids living uh, living on the streets of Denver. And so now these organizations are all under one roof and they're providing the, the housing expertise of Providence Network, the experience working with case management experience of working with vulnerable street kids through dry bones, and then jobs. You know, One of the big barriers to these kids really leaving a life of chaos and entering a life of stability is having a a place where they can work and a place and an employer that has grace with them as they're getting their feet underneath them, given their really challenging life circumstances. So today, if you were to come to Denver and go to the Silver Linings house, you would see 24 kids, uh, all that were formerly homeless, now living under one roof, being served collaboratively with these three organizations. Each organization, though unique, having the shared faith in Christ and recognizing their own limitations. And and it's a really powerful picture of what's possible within the kingdom of God. And I think, as Jill shared there, as we talk with people about rooting for rivals, the question that we keep hearing is, well, why isn't this happening more? And the forces of, uh, I think, of our culture don't drive us to this. There aren't the incentives to work together. It's much easier just to go it alone. But I think that the byproducts of working together are so much more powerful. And as I was talking with Derek Kirkendall as I toured the property uh, a couple of months ago, he he's the director of Providence Network. And he shared how it's not just been in this program, in this actual house specifically, where they've seen that sort of open-handed generosity but it's in the ways in which those leaders are now working together. And he shared that in a recent fundraising gala at Dry Bones, the street youth ministry, they asked Derek to come up and share about Providence Network at their fundraising gala. They invited Derek to come up, you know, by all extents, uh, a rival ministry, a fellow organization that's trying to raise money from Christian donors, uh, but invited Derek to come up and share at their fundraiser. And that's a sort of possibility that, that we think is not just going to have a revolutionary effect on the church, but is is one that really is going to allow us to better uh, present who we are as Christians to neighbors around us who might be skeptical of of why we would have faith based organizations at all. And it, it's a picture of, of what we hope to see more of as a result of this book.
0: Hmm. And I know as people are hearing you share that story, and as people read the book, there is something just refreshing <laughs> about these organizations that are coming together and collaborating and there's something intriguing about it. And I would imagine most everyone desires it, but when you get to the practicalities of collaboration, sometimes it's, it's messy and Jill, I'm curious how, how you see it possible or, or if even organizations should maintain their own distinctiveness while they also are pursuing collaboration with others.
3: Yeah, I think the example that Chris just shared is great. Another one that sticks out to me from the book was the story of Life Song for Orphans. Um, Their mission is to bring joy and purpose to orphans around the world. And as they grew their own organization and established an infrastructure for themselves, they started to look beyond and think, what are ways that we can support other nonprofits? And at the time that we interviewed them for the book, they were actually providing back office support like IT services and accounting services for 18 other nonprofits. So each of them were saved the overhead of having to replicate that same infrastructure for their organization. And as everybody understands, less overhead equals more money that can go straight to serving the families they're trying to serve. Um, But that being said, if I can push back a little bit on the question, um, I think that we would say that's the wrong starting point. Instead of starting with how do we pursue our own distinctiveness or maintain our own distinctiveness, I think we want to start with um, the mission behind our mission, which is hopefully glorifying God and expanding his kingdom. And so when we ask ourselves, how can we accomplish the most good for God's kingdom? I think sometimes there are going to be cases like Life Song where you can maintain your organizational distinctiveness and when, you know, nobody else even knows that Life Song is providing these services for 18 other organizations. They they've each maintained that distinctiveness. But then I think there are going to be other cases where what will result is a merger or a partnership and one or more organizations may lose that distinctiveness, but that's not a failure. I think that could be a kingdom success.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Chris, you invite readers uh, to name drop on behalf of their rivals in this book, and you've done a lot of that already everyone who's who shared. Um, but i I'm curious beyond that, who is a rival that you'd like to pitch to this audience?
2: I got to know through the course of my career at Hope, uh, Dave Blanchard and Josh Kwan at Praxis. and praxis, I, I think that they offer a really compelling Uh, vision for what this looks like, uh, what a rooting for rivals posture looks like in the way that they've structured their organization. One of the things that you'll learn about Praxis is that they are about the flourishing of other organizations. At the very root of this ministry is a passion to see other leaders grow and elevate and uh, see them flourish and thrive uh, and they often take a backseat to that so praxis operates a number of different programs their sort of initial and key, keynote programs are their accelerators they have a accelerator 12-month accelerator for Christian nonprofit leaders and a 12-month accelerator for Christian for-profit leaders and and these uh, in each of these cohorts there are 12 organizations 12 leaders 12 um, or, yeah that, that go through this process of of really growing their ministry, investing in their own leadership, uh, and and what we what we write about in rooting for rivals is that because they've oriented themselves to see other organizations grow and flourish, they have this incredible posture. I think in all that they do, where they really practice the you know we, the two by two that we that I talked about earlier and that we feature in the book, where they have a kingdom mentality and they believe in a God of abundance. I was talking with Dave Blanchard a couple of months ago about their work, and, and I was asking them about how they're fundraising, because in addition to serving all of these Christian uh, nonprofits and Christian for-profit uh, leaders, they also themselves are a nonprofit. And I asked them, like, how is fundraising going for you? And, and he didn't say it in an arrogant way, but his comment to me was, you know, as we've focused on the leaders and organizations outside of our own, God's just taking care of our needs. And that's not to say it always works out that way. But in, in some regards, their their outward kingdom, uh, abundance-focused, open-handed, generous posture to leadership has resulted in their own needs being met far beyond what they even hoped or, or imagined. And, and they've done that without much of a fundraising emphasis or push uh, as an organization. And, and so I I just... That they're, in some ways, a rival. They're a peer organization in the same space as Hope International. Uh, but we just believe in the work that they're doing. And we believe that the kingdom is advanced and the church is encouraged as leaders and organizations take on that posture of being about thing, being about the kingdom beyond just the boundaries of their own organization.
0: Peter, the, the final question for you is, what do you hope people do after finishing this book, when they put it down and are now asking themselves now, what, what do you hope they do?
1: Yeah, I think there's, there's two things. One is what they believe. And then the second piece is what they do. So I think for all of us uh, to be reminded that we have a bigger and a broader and more significant, more long lasting definition of success that goes beyond just the bounds of our organizations, that we believe once again, in the unity that we have together, that the shared mission that we have and that we look at other organizations, not as our competition, but as our partners. And I love the word friend that we ultimately would look at other people, other organizations and, and truly have friendships. So we hope that there's a change in some of the ways that we look at the world, some of the ways that we think, some of the things that perhaps we're reminded of. But then the second piece is really, so what do we do about this? And at the end of each chapter, we try to give specific case studies that are very practical, that are very concrete of people that we found that are living out these principles that are actively rooting for their rivals. And so I I hope that that this book unleashes more creative uh, practices. Uh, more creativity in how we actively put this idea that, again, many of us would ascribe to how we actually put it into practice. And so perhaps for some, it means that there's going to be greater intentionality about spending time together with other organizations. Maybe there's going to be more open-handedness where things that we've developed could be uh, positively uh, used in other organizations and we're going to actively share. Maybe it means a commitment uh, to getting together and sharing failures when things, Don't go well with other organizations. Maybe it means that we're going to use our platform more intentionally to promote not just our own organization, but other organizations. And the list goes on. Uh, But ultimately, we hope it's a reminder for all of us to seek first, not our good, uh, but to seek first the kingdom of God and uh, to be reminded that we are in this together and how desperately, how desperately we need each other in this work. I want to say one last thing from my vantage point,
2: And that is that you, we're not going to have Jill as part of all of the remaining episodes. She's participating in this one, uh, which we're so grateful that Jill joined us, but uh, Jill was a vital team member on this project. And Peter and I could not have written this book or done it without her. And it really was, I think a quarterbacking sort of role that Jill played from start to finish in helping us, Yes, it took two and a half years, uh, but getting from, from the sort of genesis of some really nebulous ideas to a a final project, a final product that I think we're all really excited about, uh, was a huge, huge contribution, uh, from Jill and the way she kept us organized and helped challenge our thinking and, and really pushed this, this project to the next level. So Jill, on behalf of Peter and I, I just want to thank you for the ways in which you, uh, yeah, really made this an incredible project. Uh, it's been such a joy to work with you.
3: Thank you guys. It's been a, a tremendous joy for me to work with you as well. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Rooting for Rivals podcast. Rooting for Rivals is a book by Peter Greer and Chris Horst with Jill Heisey that reveals how faith-based ministries can multiply their impact by cooperating rather than competing with others. You can get the book anywhere books are sold. For more information about this episode, including links to resources mentioned in the show, visit www.rootingforrivals.com slash podcast.